Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the historian's conscience. I want to begin today with a story from the spring and autumn period. In 554 BC, a new duke rose to rulership in the eastern state of Qi. He was known as Duke Zhuang of Qi, or sometimes the latter Duke Zhuang of Qi, because there had already been an earlier duke, also called Duke Zhuang. In rising to power, Duke Zhuang received support from a top minister named Cui Zhu. But after he came to power, Duke Zhuang began to have an affair with Cui Zhu's wife. Cui Zhu found out about it and confronted his wife. She said, in essence, that it wasn't as though she could refuse their lord. If you've watched the TV show The Great, depicting the court of Catherine the Great of Russia, you may remember the way Peter III took it for granted that he could sleep with the wife of his best friend, Grigor much to Grigor's consternation. It was kind of like that. Eventually, Cui Zhu couldn't take it anymore. In 548 BC, with his wife's cooperation, Cui Zhu tricked Duke Zhuang into believing that he was away, so that now was the perfect time to go over to his house for an assignation with his wife. Once the Duke went there, Cui Zhu's men locked all the doors and trapped him inside. The duke begged for his life and said he knew his crime now. Would they please let him out so that he could go to the state temple and commit suicide there? Would they permit him the dignity of suicide? They told him no. The duke tried to climb over a wall to run away. Somebody shot him in the thigh, so he fell back down, and then they killed him. In the wake of the duke's death, although a new duke came to the throne, Cui Zhu arrogated power upon himself and became the leading figure at the court of Qi. At this time, the court historian this was a job, a position traditional to Chinese imperial or royal or even ducal courts, had to record how exactly Duke Zhuang died. Cui Zhu instructed the court historian to write that the duke died of malaria. But when he examined the chronicle, he saw that the court historian instead wrote, Cui Zhu killed the duke. Cui Zhu was outraged, and he had the historian killed. Now, the court historian had three younger brothers. And it seems that at this time in Chinese history, being a court historian was a family business. So, the next oldest brother succeeded to the position of court historian. He too wrote, Cui Zhu killed the duke. So, Cui Zhu had him killed as well. 
the next brother succeeded to the position of court historian. Again, he also wrote, Cui Zhu killed the duke. Cui Zhu had him killed. Now there was only one brother left, and he became court historian. Cui Zhu said to him, All three of your brothers are dead. Do you not fear for your life? If you just write down what I tell you to write, I'll let you live. The youngest brother replied, To record honestly events as they happened is the historian's duty. I would rather die than to live and to fail to carry out my duty. Cui Zhu finally gave up and said, Perhaps even if you write whatever you like, posterity will forgive me for what I did. The youngest brother left court and headed to the historian's office. On the way, he ran into a cousin who was also a historian. What are you doing here? he asked the cousin. The cousin replied, I assumed you and your brothers would all be dead by now, and there'd be no one to record honestly how the duke died. So I came to take up that responsibility. The common saying goes that history is written by the victors. But if you actually read the Chinese annals, you often find passages far from flattering for the rulers in power when the historian was writing. The brave fraternal historians of the state of Qi were one such example. In fact, their virtue was such an exemplar for later literati that in the late 13th century, Wen Tianxiang, the late Song dynasty statesman who ended up imprisoned by the Mongols, celebrated them in his famous prison poem, Zheng Qi Gu, The Song on the Spirit of Righteousness. Another example might be the court historian Cui Hao, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries AD and served the Northern Wei regime during the North and South dynasties. In 429, he, his younger brother, and a few others began to draft a history of the Northern Wei. The ruling class of this regime were so-called barbarians who had migrated into China. In his history book, Cui Hao accurately recorded which families were from where, in other words, which families were barbarians. This led, ultimately, to the Northern Wei rulers being concerned that the information could lead to ethnic conflicts between the Han Chinese and the immigrants. But Cui Hao refused to budge, refused to change a word that he'd written. In 450 AD, the emperor finally ordered him executed, as well as every member of his family. But even then, Cui Hao stood his ground. Now, this didn't mean that the conscience of the historian always prevailed. Sometimes the censors won, sometimes the tyrants won. The most famous Chinese historian of all, Sima Qian, the grand historian, 
who wrote the historical records during the reign of Emperor Wu Di of the Han Dynasty, could attest to this. When he wrote the chapter on the reign of Emperor Wu Di himself, he criticized many aspects of Wu Di's administration. We'll never know what exactly those criticisms were, because after Sima Tian wrote it, he actually presented the chapter to Emperor Wu Di for his perusal. Emperor Wu Di was so upset upon reading it that he ordered the text destroyed. If you read the historical records today, there is a chapter on the reign of Emperor Wu Di, but this was a later addendum, not Sima Tian's original text. And sometime later, Emperor Wu Di had Sima Tian castrated as punishment. There was another cause for the emperor's anger by this time, but many believe that, to some extent, Wu Di was looking for an excuse to punish Sima Tian further for, in his view, defaming his imperial majesty. Even so, the shortcomings of Emperor Wu Di's reign still come through some of the other chapters that recorded contemporary events. The very structure of the historical records is, in a way, critical of the Han Dynasty itself. Not only does it give a respectful account of the life and career of Xiang Yu, the chief rival to the founding Han Emperor, it elevates Xiang Yu to the position of a rightful emperor equal to any of the Han Dynasty. And Emperor Wu Di went down in history as, on the one hand, a great military emperor, but on the other, a terrible tyrant. His reputation for tyranny was due in part to the way he censored Sima Tian from saying exactly how he felt. I've been thinking about these historians. Again, it's a common refrain that history is written by the victors. But if that's so, then how did it come about? How did the tradition and the culture develop that court historians in ancient China generally felt it their responsibility to record the truth, consequences be damned, even at the cost of their own lives? This was an incredibly consequential attribute of traditional Chinese culture. It is the reason we have such extensive records of the past. It is the reason that those records are substantially unvarnished, unsanitized, largely reliable. In fact, each imperial dynasty was responsible for writing the history of the previous dynasty especially the reign of the last emperor of the last dynasty. The task of writing this history was one of the functions of government, one of the reasons for having a government. You may think that this would lead to some very biased reporting. After all, the rulers of the new dynasty were typically people who rebelled against the rulers of the previous dynasty or else they were invaders from beyond. To justify the legitimacy of their own rule, 
the rulers of the new dynasty always had an incentive to spread propaganda against the people they replaced. But this is not what we see in Chinese annals. Historians employed by the Qing dynasty, for example, portrayed the Chongzhen Emperor, the last of the Ming emperors, as a hardworking and decent man who simply had the misfortune of facing overwhelming difficulties. So how did this happen? How did historians in Chinese tradition come to enjoy such a role? Well, tradition tells us that even the Yellow Emperor, the mythic founder of China, some 47 centuries ago, already had a court historian. And he was none other than Cang Jie, the man credited with inventing Chinese writing. Of course, both the Yellow Emperor and Cang Jie were mythic figures, not historical ones. We don't know if there really was a single human being named Cang Jie. Maybe he was rather a group or a class of people who contributed to the development of the Chinese written language. But maybe that class was the historian class, men responsible for recording things, hence written language. Tradition also tells us that from early on, the court historian enjoyed a level of privilege that others perhaps didn't share. The Annals of Lü Buwei, written in the 3rd century BC, reported the court historian of King Jie of Xia, the last king of the Xia dynasty, trying to give him some unwelcome advice. Now, the Xia dynasty has not been archaeologically substantiated. And if it existed, then it existed from about 2000 BC to about 1600 BC. King Jie was the last of the Xia kings, so this story about the historian's unwelcome advice would have happened around 1600 BC, nearly 14 centuries before Lü Bui wrote his annals. But the point is taken. Even in the face of King Jie, an infamous tyrant, a sadist, the court historian felt he had the right and the responsibility to tell the king what was what. It turns out that if you really go and read all the writings by ancient Chinese historians, the truly ancient ones, from before Sima Tian, then you'll begin to sense the answer. During the early Chinese dynasties, the court historians were also the court priests or shamans, you might even say the court wizards. Of course, ancient societies the world over observed certain superstitions. The possibility of foretelling the future, for example, is a belief widely shared. In ancient Greece, this took the form of oracles, like the Delphic Oracle, which people could go and consult. In Shang Dynasty, China, so between about 1600 BC and 1000 BC, kings would go to their priests and ask for prophecies. The priests would carve the questions onto animal bones or tortoise shells, 
burn them, and then interpret the cracks in the bones or shells. These are what we now call oracle bones. So the central insight, the essence of the answer to our question, is that the same priests engaging in this oracular practice were also the court historians responsible for recording events. And that explains the historian's right, as well as duty, to be truthful. The source of their authority was supernatural. They answered to the gods, not to the kings. That meant they could speak truth to the king's power, and the king would be wary of violating the sanctity of any servants of the gods. At the same time, in order to make accurate predictions, of course, one needed to start with an accurate representation of things as they stood. The oracle bones were a sort of historical record in themselves, because they recorded the questions that the kings at the time wanted to ask the gods. And kings, of course, typically asked questions relating to affairs of state. For example, should I or should I not go and fight this war? And if a king wanted the oracle to give him an honest answer, of course, his question had to be honest. If an enemy had attacked and the king wanted to know whether to make war or to make peace, then he could hardly pretend that the enemy never attacked in the first place. Thus it came to be that the wizard historians of ancient China possessed both the right and the duty to record events accurately. I read that in large part we owe this insight, this explanation of the traditional historian's independence to the poet and archaeologist Chen Mengjia. Chen Mengjia was born in 1911, a few months before the revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty and ushered in the republic. As a young man in the 1930s, he became a member of the literary circle that included Xu Zhimo, the most famous poet of Republican China, and Lin Huiying, the first female architect in Chinese history and one of the greatest scholars ever on traditional Chinese architecture. He began to publish poetry in Xu Zhimo's literary journal. In this time, he also obtained a license to practice law. And he began to study the oracle bones from the Shang dynasty, the significance of which had only been recognized around the turn of the century some 30 years earlier. He became a leading expert on the subject. As a professor during World War II, he taught both within China and at the University of Chicago. Post-war, he returned to China to continue his research and academic career. But then the Communist Revolution happened in 1949. He fared poorly under communist rule. In the 1950s, he took a number of positions opposed to Mao's policies. For example, he was against 
the adoption of simplified characters as standard. As a result, in the so-called anti-rightist movement, he came to be deemed one of those rightists that needed to be put in their place. At this time, his wife couldn't take the persecution and suffered a mental breakdown. His wife, Chao Luo Rei, we should mention, was a translator and a scholar of comparative literature. Indeed, she was the first person to translate T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland into Chinese. But the persecution continued in the 1960s during the Cultural Revolution. Chen Mengjia was made to kneel outdoors for many hours at a time. He was forbidden from bathing or changing his clothes until he stank to high heaven. And his persecutors would come and dump their refuse, the remnants of their meals, for example, on his head. As a scholar, he naturally collected many books and treasured the collection. He also collected Ming and Qing-era furniture. These were all confiscated during this time and presumably destroyed. In 1966, saying that he could no longer stand being taken for a dancing monkey, Chen Mengjia hanged himself although some say he was actually beaten to death and suicide was just the cover story. I tell you the story of Chen Mengjia after our discussion on the Chinese historian's traditional right to speak truthfully because it seems to me that that right has actually eroded over the centuries. In some ways, historians later in Chinese history might have felt less free to speak honestly than their ancient predecessors. It makes sense if the ancient historians derived their freedom from divine authority, from religion. As shamanistic religion declined, so that original source of the historian's power necessarily waned. The time necessarily came when rulers no longer remembered why they were supposed to respect the historian's independence. Until finally, we arrived in the modern age. The modern Chinese government doesn't have the court historian as a position, as modern governments around the world have no such position. In modern times, the writing of history ceased to be a necessary state function, one of the raison d'etre for government in the first place, at least Chinese government. Instead, we have lots of professors and popular historians writing their own books, their own accounts, not to mention foreign sinologists also writing their own works. Although, even in modern times, the Chinese have made an effort to follow tradition. In the years immediately following the 1911 revolution, the Republican government created a Bureau of Qing Dynasty History to write the history of the preceding dynasty. But the Bureau never finished its work. Before war and revolution, 
put it on the back burner. Today's People's Republic of China has an ongoing project to finish writing an official history of the Qing dynasty under the auspices of a government committee. But, as is well known, in today's PRC, history can be subject to the whims of prevailing political interests. Adding that to the proliferation of privately written histories, I have to wonder whether the final product will enjoy the authority of the traditional 24 histories passed down through the ages. Maybe the Qing dynasty is far enough in the past that members of the official committee can exercise the ancient Chinese historian's God-given right to report events fairly. Or maybe Qing history is still too relevant to contemporary politics for the committee to be fully shielded from political influence. And that makes me think about Chen Mengjia. He wasn't a historian writing down contemporary events for posterity. He was rather a scholar interested in the distant past. But still, he displayed a measure of the same spirit of independence that he wrote about. The fraternal historians of the state of Qi during spring and autumn went to their deaths one by one, rather than write any history that they knew to be false. So, Chen Mengjia chose to go to his death rather than to stay alive and be his enemy's dancing monkey. Of course, in modern times, we no longer believe in the shamanistic religion that thousands of years ago endowed the Chinese court historian with his sense of responsibility to the truth. But scholars like Chen Mengjia may still draw strength from a more universal belief, the conscience and dignity of the individual soul. Is that enough? I don't know. But it's something. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.